Well, it's hard to believe, I think, that it's almost Christmas. It, it almost seems in some ways to me as though it snuck up a bit. I don't know if it's snuck up on you. Uh, you. You might be thinking, no, it hasn't snuck up on me. I've been panicking about this for the last couple of months. But, uh, but it, it wasn't until yesterday that I noticed that there are any signs up about Christmas. They could have been up for months. I'm a pretty unobservant kind of person, uh, and so they could have been there for months. But it wasn't until yesterday that I saw them, and that I was standing at Baker's Delight, and they had the... The, the, uh, you know, the Christmas cake trees or whatever it was, and then uh, in Meadow Muse they've got the Santa's chair. It could have been, as I said, it could have been there for three months. I wouldn't know. Uh, but I saw it only for the first time yesterday. Uh, people are getting ready for Christmas. It's only four weeks away and people are starting to panic, starting to get their Christmas shopping done and, and uh, decorate various things. Uh, And just as people are getting ready for Christmas in the shopping centres and in their homes, over the next few weeks here at the branch, in the lead up to Christmas, we're going to be getting ready for Christmas as well by looking at the book of Isaiah, by shooting back in history to about 700 years before the birth of Jesus uh, to look at this Old Testament book of Isaiah. The reason we're looking uh, at Isaiah is that there's some really well-known passages in Isaiah that speak about uh, the coming of Jesus, well-known passages that are often read about Christmas time. Uh, so like Isaiah 7, we're told, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Uh, or in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And those of you who know Messiah will hear the uh, violins and cellos going at the moment with that kind of, you know, just <laughs> running in my head already. Uh, I can't get it out. But uh, uh, Isaiah is, is a book that speaks about the coming of Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be working through Isaiah and thinking about that Old Testament hope of the coming of a saviour which has been fulfilled in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, uh, you might find it helpful over the next few weeks to see how long before Jesus actually was born into the world, how God said what he was going to do. Uh, It might help you to understand why as human beings we need Jesus. Why did we need for the Son of God to be born as a child into our world? Why did we need him to die on a cross and to rise again? We're going to be thinking about some of those things. And if you're not a Christian, you might find that uh, helpful to think through. If you are a Christian, hopefully what it will do for you is to help you love God more. Uh, It will remind you of who we are without Christ, and it will remind you of the wonderful things that God has done in Jesus. And hopefully that will overflow in praise uh, and thanks in your life. Well, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 introduces the book of Isaiah and the vision that God gave to Isaiah. And we're told that he prophesied during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. It's around the time that the ten northern tribes of Israel were sent off into exile by Assyria. So if you don't know, in about 722 BC, the ten northern tribes of Israel were were sent away. They They were sent away by God because of their sin into exile. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were all that was left. Uh, we never hear really much more about the ten northern tribes. The rest of the Bible, after uh, after the end of Kings, if you like, uh, traces. 
uh, through what happens with the two southern tribes in the line of David and uh, the kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah's prophesying around that time where those ten northern tribes get, get sent away because of their sin in 722 BC. But Isaiah himself is speaking to the southern kingdom, of uh, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, who continued to be ruled, as I said, by David and his descendants. And they too would later themselves be sent into exile uh, in about 596 BC. Uh, and already here, already uh, a few hundred years before that, a couple of hundred years before that, uh, God is calling the people already to deal with their sin through uh, the ministry of Isaiah. He says in verse 2, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken what he said. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. God likens the situation between him and his people to the situation between a parent and a child. So like a human parent, God has brought people into the world. He's given them life. He's loved them. He's protected them. He's given them food and shelter. He's given them protection and care. And yet they've rebelled against him. They've rejected his love. For those of you who are parents, you'll know what this kind of thing is like to varying degrees. Uh, So you might slave away for hours uh, every night, making the dinner, and you put it on the table, and one of the kids says, yuck. I don't want this. I hate this. This is my, this is the worst thing. This is the thing I hate the most. And you've just spent two hours, or whatever it is, making dinner. How does that feel? And how does that feel when that happens night after night after night after night? You spend thousands of dollars on a family holiday and while you're away, all the kids can do is complain. This is dumb. I don't want to be here. (laughs) You spend hours one night helping one of the kids with their homework and they can't even say thanks. Or you offer to help and they think you're too stupid to actually have any contribution. I'm taking that as a nervous laugh (laughs) of identification. And even uh, you you pour out hours uh, of your life and huge amounts of money into raising them over, over years and they're ungrateful. Or they cut off any contact with you. They don't want to have anything to do with you. Even into adulthood, you're there to fix up their problems and to pull them out of the ditch that they've created for themselves. But all they ever seem to do is to accuse you of not loving them, of not helping, uh, and of not caring about them. Whenever I see even the simple ways that children treat their parents, parents, the simple, uh, you know, I don't like this, Whenever I see things like that, my first thought is, my poor parents. And all the hurt 
and the pain that I caused them over years comes flooding back. But actually what God is saying in Isaiah is we shouldn't only think when we see that of the way that we've hurt our own parents, but we should think about the way that we've treated God. Uh, One of the parents I know always says, this must be how God feels. Difficult children. Ungrateful children. That is, our struggles as parents and our rebellion as children reflects in just a tiny way, just a tiny way, God struggled with billions and billions of his own people, his creatures, people like you and me whom he has created, people that he loves, but people who reject his love in favour of their own preferences and their own ways. God provides us with food and we're dissatisfied. What do you call this, God? I don't want this, I want something else. He gives us gifts of recreation and fun and we're so ungrateful, we don't even say thanks. He offers us his wisdom and we think he's too stupid. He's so out of touch. He pours out vast quantities into our lives. He keeps us living and breathing and we cut off contact with him and accuse him of not caring about us. It's worth asking the question whether that's how you treat God. Do you treat him as someone who loves you and who's seeking your good? And do you entrust yourself to him as someone who loves you? Or do you treat him as the great party pooper in the sky, the neglectful parent? God says here that even a stupid ox knows his master and even a donkey is sensible enough not to spurn the owner who feeds him and gives him a place to stay. But God's people here in Isaiah are not that clever. They're biting the hand that feeds them. When I was growing up, we had a dog, uh, and she would never run away. Uh, Even though sometimes we'd have to tell her off, you know, we'd come home and she'd been lying on the bed or something while we were away. There'd be that depressed patch, you know, it was kind of the warm patch uh, where she'd been lying on the bed, or she dug up something in the garden and we'd have to tell her off. But whatever it might be, she never ran away for all that. She never would run away because she knew that at the end of the day, despite our displeasure at those things, that was where she got the food and that was where she had a home to sleep. And yet God says that if you reject him, you're more stupid than my dog. You're more foolish than an ox or a donkey because you reject the God who loves and feeds you and gives you life. The reason that sin is evil is not simply because there's some divine rule book in the sky that we've broken and rules are not to be broken. The reason sin is so evil is because we're loved, we're desperately loved. And we've spat in the face of the God who loves us. God's extravagant love makes us more guilty, not less guilty. So through Isaiah, God first of all reveals the deep hurt that people have caused him. 
But the people's rebellion, it turns out, is not just hurting him, it's also hurting them as well. Next, God says in verse 5, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. Uh, Not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil, your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is like a shelter, uh, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. God asks the people why they persist in rebellion when it's causing them grief and sorrow. Why are you still going down that track? They're battered from head to toe, they've got wounds, welts, they've got open sores, the country's desolate, it's burned, it's stripped bare. The people, God says, are like shelters in a vineyard or huts in a cucumber field, which seems at first like a strange image. Uh, But the picture is of a a field completely empty after the harvest, if you like, and all that's left is this one building in the middle. It's it's empty for miles around, and in the middle there's this one building, and it's just this ramshackle little hut that they've put up for the harvest. It's not the Burj Khalifa, you know, kind of towering out over the surrounding. It's this temporary ramshackle hut derelict. That's it. That's all that's left. Their wounds that they have are the consequences of the rebellion against God. They're reaping the results of turning against God's love. Not not only is it paining God, it's paining them. And it doesn't take, I don't think, a genius to realise that our rebellion against God as human beings, as individuals and as human beings collectively, our rebellion against God causes us tremendous pain as well. We experience that pain every day. Sometimes the pain is the direct result of our own evil. So to go back to the example of parents and children, the way that we treat or mistreat our parents leaves deep scars on our lives. It causes us pain and it causes them pain. Even if we can all forgive each other and get on with it, it's still there, isn't it? There's still that pain and the, and the, and the memory. Other relationships can bear the scars of long years of our own evil. And it makes us miserable and it makes others miserable as well. Or your life might be self-destructing through drug use or alcohol abuse. It might be imploding because of an addiction, an unhealthy addiction to social media and the vacuous idolatry of other people's lives and the vacuous idolatry of your own life. It might be imploding just because you're clinging on to bitterness or resentment or greed. We bear the consequences of our own evil. It causes us pain. Sometimes that pain is, as I said, the result of our own evil, and sometimes that pain is the result of the evil 
just in the world around us, in, in other people's lives. It's the result of a world turned against God. It's the grand summation, if you like, of billions and billions of people who've rebelled against God, who've told God to sort of get lost, to get out of their lives. Their rejection affects us. The way they've chosen to live against God mars our life as well, just as our rejection of God can distress them. And yet God says to the people in verse 5, he says, why won't you come back? See what it's doing to you? Do you see what your life is doing to you? Why won't you, come, why won't you leave that and come back to me? Why do you keep going that way when it's killing you? Why won't you turn back and be healed? It's like a father looking at the life of one of his children and they're going, their, their child's life is reaping turmoil. And he's looking out over his child and he says, why won't you come back to me? Why don't you leave this? Don't you see that it's killing you? I can think of uh, someone that I know who is addicted to all kinds of hardcore, softcore drugs. And their mother has been persevering with them for years, decades. Why won't you come back? That's what God is saying to us. It's strange, isn't it, that so often we can see clearly the results of our rejection of God and yet we persist in going that way anyway. There's a myth, it's not a complete myth, but it is a myth to some degree. The myth is that if only people knew the consequences of their actions, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do them. So we have endless education programs to teach people the consequences of their actions. But it doesn't work. Because, as God says, we're more stupid than an ox and more foolish than a donkey. I want to speak just for a moment to those of you who are living without God. Uh, you know who you are. I don't know who you are, but uh, there's bound to be some of us who are living without God, rejecting God, rebelling against God, choosing a different way. Let me ask you this question. Why won't you come back? Life without God is misery. It might be fun for a while, but in the end it's misery. Why embrace that misery? Why embrace that pain when you can turn back to God and be healed? Why die when you can live in Christ? It's not even a choice, is it? You might say, but what do I need to do? Turn back to God. Turn to Jesus. You just say to God, God, I've been living my life away from you, apart from you. And I want to come back. I know that you love me. 
I want to know your love. And I want to love you in return. Turn back to God, turn back to Jesus. Well, our sin against God not only hurts God, it hurts us. It was hurting the people of Israel. And in the next part of Isaiah chapter 1, God describes the nature of that rebellion. How were they rebelling against God? Well, he describes them in verse 10 as like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, he says, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The rebellion of God's own people, uh, says God, is as deep as the rebellion of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those people had utterly rejected God's pattern for the world by rejecting uh, sex between a man and a woman uh, and in, in exchanging that for uh, homosexual sex and uh, exchanging it for rape as well. It's not that uh, homosexuality is a worse sin than other sins, but it is in a way the epitome of the rejection of God's plan and pattern for the world. It's such a clear distortion of the way that God has created the world, the will that God has, the plan that God has for the world. And God says that his people, not the people in society, he says his people are the same. That is, they're rejecting God's pattern and plan for the world. They're rejecting God's authority. Uh, In verse 21, God lists other sins. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with silver. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before him. This is God's people. They're like a prostitute. In a spiritual sense, they've sold themselves to other gods. They've rejected God. They used to care about justice. They don't care about justice anymore. They used to care about the poor. They don't care about the poor anymore. All they care about is themselves. Everything precious that they had has become corrupted. The silver has become dross. Dross is the rubbish that is in unrefined silver. Uh, and it cheapens the value of it, it cheapens the look of it, uh, it degrades it. Their best wine as well is diluted with water. It's a great description, I think, of what happens when we reject God's ways. Precious things become devalued. The good gifts of God, uh, we think by, by going against God's ways that we're actually improving on God's gifts. Right, So if we, we, we can take our relationships and live them according to uh, our own rules, we think that's making them better. But actually, it's devaluing the good and the precious gift that God has given to us. We think that by spending all our money on ourselves, we're actually adding value to our lives. By neglecting the poor, we're actually living a better life. But God says, no, actually, it's like diluting good wine with water. It's dumb and it's really gross. But that's how we choose to live. We take God's good gifts uh, and devalue them. Judah's rulers are rebels. They're unreliable. They're deceitful. They partner with the city's thieves. It could describe uh, the corruption uncovered in the Union Royal Commission a couple of years ago. It could describe the corruption uncovered in the New South Wales ICAC inquiries. It could describe FIFA, couldn't it? Uh, Or the IOC and the endless corruption and bribery scandals that we have there. But it's not describing any of those things, it's describing the church. It's the church who has become corrupt. 
And yet all the while they have this veneer of religiosity. Look at verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. These people are religious fanatics. They're always at church on Sunday. Uh, they always take Sunday off. They, they, uh, they don't work. They never miss Easter and Christmas. They're always at the church prayer meeting. They're prayer warriors. But God hates it. In fact, God says terrifyingly, I think, he stopped listening to their prayers. They're praying all the time. God's just not listening. Their religious exterior hides the fact that they have no interest in living God's way. It's a kind of a glossy exterior and a seedy underbelly. These people think that their religious observances will keep them in God's good books, but it doesn't work like that. God says that they're detestable to him. God had given the people those rituals, those practices as a good gift, as a way of teaching them the gospel, as a way of enabling them to express their repentance, as a way of enabling them to express their faith in God's mercy and the forgiveness that was to come in Jesus Christ. But they'd begun to treat those things as a kind of good luck charm. They thought that they could live as they wanted as long as they ticked all the boxes of religious observance. Pray, yes. Church, yes. If they did all those things, they would be right with God. That's what they thought. And it's easy for us, I think, to think the same kind of thing. Often it's not deliberate. Uh, often, often we don't think like that. Uh, so, so thoughtfully, if you like. But we deal with the sin in our lives rather than dealing with the actual sin. We deal with it by throwing ourselves into more and more religious practices. I can nurse this sin as long as I just pray a little bit more. God will be happy with me if I... I don't have to deal with that, but God will be happy with me if I just keep throwing myself into, into church ministry. If I sign up for another roster. Church attendance masks a life of oppressing the weak and the vulnerable. It masks a life of bullying people into submission, perhaps. Fervent prayerfulness can hide greed and theft. Diligent Bible reading can conceal deep-rooted bitterness and hatred. Keen participation in church and church ministry can conceal addictions to porn or alcohol or drugs or anything. 
If that's you, God says, your religious observance stinks. And maybe even I've stopped listening to your prayers. It's terrifying, isn't it? But God says we, he is not interested in people who aren't interested in dealing with sin. So what's the solution? Well, the solution comes in the next few verses. The ultimate solution is not religious fakery, but genuine repentance. God says to the people in verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. These people are to wash and to make themselves clean. What that means is explained by the next line, they're to stop doing wrong, they're to get rid of evil, uh, the evil that they're doing, In other words, washing means changing their lives. Their mistake was to think they could hang on to the sin uh, that they had while covering it up with religious observance. But God isn't interested in sacrifices and endless prayers. He's interested in people who are serious about dealing with sin and who are serious about seeking God's rescue from sin. They need to take concrete steps like replacing greed with defending the oppressed or taking up the cause of the fatherless and of the widow. But what they really need to do is not just to turn away from sin but to actually appropriate the things which all their religious practices were pointing to. All their religious practices were pointing to the truth of the gospel. That is, daily they and weekly and monthly, every, all the time they, were, they had to practice these washing ceremonies. And God says, you stupid people. It's not by doing those practices that you're, that you're saved, that you're rescued from sin. It's by actually turning away from sin and embracing the hope of what I'm going to do in the future. That's what God was saying to them. And so God says to his people here, stop, stop putting your trust in, in, in doing those ceremonies. Turn to me, wash, make yourselves clean. Turn away from sin and and appropriate the truth of the gospel. The hope of being cleansed from sin. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will put my spirit within you. I'll take away your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and move you to do my laws and, and to walk in my ways. God says, turn to that promise. Turn from sin and embrace that promise. If they get serious about sin and about their need for God to rescue them from it, then God promises to do what they can't do. He promises to deal with the evil of their past and even to deal with the sin in their hearts and in their present. He says in verse 18, Come now, let us settle the matter says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. These are some of the most beautiful words, I think, about repentance and forgiveness in the whole Bible. 
God isn't calling the people to fix up their lives, to kind of get themselves together before they come to him. What he's saying is he's calling them to turn from their rebellion and to humble themselves before God. He's calling them to turn from sin and to seek his promise. And he says if they do that, he will turn their sins as white as snow. And he'll pluck the rebellion out of their lives. Genuine repentance, says God, is met with genuine forgiveness and genuine mercy. So if you don't know Jesus uh, and if you're not following him, God, is, God isn't asking you, sorry, he isn't asking you to fix up your life before you come to him. What he's asking you to do is to change direction, to turn from going that way and to turn that way, to turn from following sin, to turn to follow Jesus Christ. He's calling you to seek in the cross of Jesus the forgiveness of sins and to seek through the power of the Holy Spirit a new life lived for God. The difference between religiosity and repentance is that repentance deals with sin. It turns away from sin and embraces the hope in the gospel of deliverance from sin. But religiosity doesn't deal with sin. It nurses and fondles sin while failing to deal with it. So through Isaiah, God reveals not only the deep hurt that the people have caused him, uh, he also reveals how their rebellion is hurting them. They're people who rebel against him and expect that just by sort of going through the motions of religious observance that God will be on their side. But God says, no, what matters actually is genuine repentance uh, and faith in the gospel. And finally, that simple response of repentance rather than religiousness leads to two vastly different futures. God says in verse 24, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward you'll be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. God promises there, in other words, to purify his city. Purify the gathering of his people and he does that in two ways. Either by purifying the hearts of his people and purifying the lives of his people or by removing his enemies. That is, not everybody is in the same boat. Look at verse 27. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. So the repentant will be delivered, but rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. The ones who turn to God in repentance, their sins will be like scarlet. They'll persist in the presence of God. But those who reject God either openly or kind of by hiding their lives under this veneer of religion... Those people, the result is the same. It's rejection by God. The picture in verse 31 is terrifying. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together. No one to quench the fire. It's a picture of hell, I think, ultimately. And finally, in the first few verses of chapter 2, God offers a vision 
on the opposite side of a time when people will flood to him in repentance and faith. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. This is what, God, uh, this is what son of Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for any more. Here's the people of, here's the people of Israel covering up their sin with religiosity, refusing to repent. And here's God's vision of the future. The pagan nations turning to God in great numbers, saying to each other, let's go to God. Let's turn to God. Let's go up to his city so he can teach us his ways and we can live for him. There are two possible futures depending on the kinds of people that we are. There is the future of peace, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, or there is the future of destruction. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. How we respond to God is of absolutely central importance. There is no more important question for any of us to consider now than this. Where do I stand with God? Where do I stand with God? Am I among the repentant? Not the perfect, but the people who say, yep, God, I've lived without you but I am embracing the promise of the gospel, deliverance from sin, from its penalty and from its power. Am I among the repentant or am I among the religious hypocrites who nurse sin, who hold on to it in the vain and empty hope that we can cover it over and God won't see Or are we even among the flagrant rebels who make no show of religion but who reject God out of hand? Where do you stand with God? Have you turned to follow Jesus and trust him? Or have you not? Are you one of the people who says, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord so that he can teach us his ways and we can walk in them. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we confess that all of us by nature are opposed to you. By nature, all of us are rebels. All of us are born into this world with hostility towards you, with ignorance of you. 
And your great love for us and your great compassion for us only makes us more guilty, not less guilty. And Lord, we confess that many of us from time to time have tried to do what your people of old did, and that is to hang on to sin and to try to cover it over by our own pathetic actions, by our prayerfulness, by our church attendance, by our enthusiasm in ministry, by our Bible reading. But Lord, those things are vain and empty. And the only thing that can cover over our sin is the blood of Christ, which has been poured out generously. A blood and a death which has a power that no other blood or death has. That is to turn us white as snow, to turn us from culpable, guilty people into those who are blameless, innocent and upright in your sight. And Lord, we thank you that many of us have heard that good news and have turned to Jesus. That many of us can say with all our hearts, let's go up to the house of God, let's go up to his city, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in them. And Father, we pray that every day uh, from this moment on that you would keep teaching us to listen to Jesus, to follow him, to trust him, to put his words into practice in our lives. But Lord, for those of us who don't know that message, we pray that you would open uh, their hearts, uh, that you would call them to faith in Jesus Christ, that you would help them to let go of sin and to know you, the true and living God, through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.